Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Emily McElroy, inaugural dean of the McGugan Health Sciences Library at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Just so listeners know, in this show, we will be talking about depression and suicidal ideation. Our conversation has been recorded today by Zoom. An Illinois native, McElroy joined UNMC in 2013 as director of McGugan Health Sciences Library, and now its inaugural dean before which she was a faculty member at several academic libraries across the country. During her tenure, the library has completed an extensive renovation of library space and expanded its collections, programs, and services. Working closely with Dr. Bob Wigton and Chancellor Jeffrey Gold, McElroy has played a lead role in expanding the library's special collections and archives into the Wigton Heritage Center. Its exhibits engage users from alumni, visiting delegations, prospective students, current students and faculty, and also Nebraska residents. McElroy is committed to the library's mission of connecting the past, informing the present, and building the future. Revealing something of her personal life, McElroy recently wrote an article for UNMC Newsroom about her experiences with depression and suicidal ideation and how she copes with these issues. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. What do you remember about your first library experience? So I grew up in a small town in Illinois, Freeport, Illinois. It's about 90 minutes outside of Chicago. And my dad was very involved in the Freeport Public Library. He served on its board for many years. So for me, the library was a refuge uh, where I was able to take off on my bike, go to the library. And then in evenings when he had board meetings, I would just hang out in the library. And I think I probably upset all the children's librarians at the time because I was an avid reader of The Adventures of Tintin. And every, I read all of the holdings at the library and I kept leaving comment cards saying, can you please purchase more Tintin books? And at the time, the children's librarian said, look, this is, we own every Tintin book. You've, you've gone through the collection. He's no longer alive. There's nothing new coming out. What I quickly realized is that she was actually incorrect. There were other Tintin books. The library just didn't own them. Um, but I was definitely a thorn in her side. Around the same time, I tried to check out a book in the adult services department And the librarian told me I couldn't because I was too young. And so my mom came into the library and um, had a talk with a librarian that I was allowed to check out books from the adult department. Other than those experiences, it was a great place for me to explore. And um, it just my budding librarian self at a very early age. It's also my dad was the one who influenced me to really consider library school. And part of it was based on the librarians that he worked with through his tenure on the, on its board. It sounds as if your childhood then was rich in the idea of reading as something to be enjoyed, to be practiced, to, um, to grow from. 
Is that something that, you know, outside of the library, that was definitely a part of your childhood and family context, this idea of books and reading? Absolutely. My father taught uh, English at our local community college. So reading was definitely something that was instilled in us from a very, from a very early age. And my entire family were avid readers. So I, I still think some of my prized possessions are my father's books with all of his marginalia. And as I read them, I can get, I can still have a conversation with him about a book, um, even though he passed away around 24 years ago. So it's it's still a piece that I, I hold very dear. Um, and, and throughout my life, just reading has just been just a key component of what I do. And, and while people think, oh, it's great, you're a librarian, you must get to read all day. I wish, <laughs> as a common misconception, we don't get to read all day. But um, anyway, that's, that's just, it's, it has been a big part of my life. I love that idea of marginalia. Is marginalia something that you now do with books or being a professional librarian, do you frown upon that now? I don't. Um, what I do is probably more offensive to a librarian in that I um, pull up, uh, I curl up pages at the bottom. Um, I, I mark a page that way. And so that's probably more destructive than actually passing it along. I think as an early, at an earlier age, I definitely did more marginalia, but not so much now. I feel like there's something fascinating about marginalia when a book passes from hand to hand, because I really do feel like there is a conversation happening around the subject matter within the book. I find that especially poignant, though, for you, that this conversation was happening with your father, and now the circumstances that the conversation is, is living on beyond him. I find that a very poignant reflection on the nature of conversation through marginalia. I agree. And he also taught philosophy. And so just this weekend, I was going through a lot of my nonfiction. And I admit, reading some of my collection and just a lot of his philosophy texts and other books that had a profound influence on me. I actually took him for a philosophy class. And again, reading his marginalia and just themes that he wrote at the, at the back of a book um, just is really, it's something where I still have that connection. How do you go about the organization of your sort of collection at home now outside the professional world? Because I know that there are <laughs> rules about how that should be done, but, but at home, how do you organize your, your reading material? So I, so I have my nonfiction separate from my fiction and my nonfiction is like a librarian. It's divided loosely into categories. I will admit that I just reorganized it. So say, for example, if I have a section on African-American history, I have the books that I've read at the beginning of that shelf, followed by what I haven't read. And then my fiction is alphabetical order. Um, I do have an entire bookshelf mixed of everything that is, I think, a little bit more pressing that I want to read. And that's a growing bookshelf. It's surpassed, actually. It's shelves. But the other, the only exception to that is um, Powell's Book Company bookstore in Portland has had a book subscription club and it's called Indispensable. And so every, I don't know, two, three months you get a book, especially hardbound with a signed copy from the author. And then something that represents Portland is usually in that, in that box. And so those are on its own separate bookshelf. Um, unfortunately, they're putting the subscription club on hold, 
but I'm still enough volumes behind that maybe by the time it comes back, I'll be caught up. It does seem inevitable that you were going to become a librarian, but librarians come in many stripes and, and you're in a position in your career now where not only are you a professional librarian, but you, but you are leading a library too. Just to set the stage a little bit, the McGugan Health Services Library is not like a typical public library that we may be imagining, but still very much a library. And I wonder if you might just give a little bit of insight into what is the difference? What is your library about? So unlike a, say, University of Nebraska at Omaha or a more traditional university library, ours is really more electronic collections. So as much as I love the print, we are probably about 99% electronic, both in terms of our books and also our journals. So I would say that's one of the first changes that you will see in an academic medical center library. The other thing, too, is just the complexity of what we address. There's a lot more urgency in terms of reference requests, literature searches that come in, usually as it relates to patient care. We also handle, um, we're very much focused, while we're still very interdisciplinary, it's very targeted in terms of the users that we serve. So, for example, we have people who have specialties in different areas because we're helping the researchers. We, we need to be able to understand the language that they're working in and the requirements that are different and in many respects more complex. So, for example, we one of our librarians is an MD. Um, she received her medical degree and then decided that she really loved that pursuit of knowledge and information resources. And so she's she went and got her library degree and now she's our primary liaison to the College of Pharmacy. So I would say that some of our expertise, we don't hire as many generalists as a typical library. At the same time, one of the things that I like about being in a health sciences library is that we see a lot of trends first in an academic health sciences library. 
I come from the world of collections. So when I have worked at traditional libraries, we've been more print focused. Um, just the nature of the materials that we're handling, the way that we provide instruction is a little bit different. And in our environment, especially with scholarly publishing, a lot of the advances happen with health sciences in the biomedical area. And so I, I feel like we're on the cutting edge of many of those tools and things even such as maker studios and maker spaces, using that for prototyping medical devices. That's a little bit different than maybe your undergraduate environment. So it's challenging. It's, um, I feel like it's a little bit faster paced especially just because it never ends. Like we don't get a summer off. And most librarians will say that regardless of where you work, do not get summers off. But for us, definitely because of the research and clinical missions that we support, it's, um, it's just a little bit more pressing. It's fascinating to think that medical practitioners are urgently sourcing um, your knowledge or rather they're sourcing your skill to acquire knowledge to provide that to them to help them. How are students using your services? So for students, we do go into the curriculum. So we're part of the curriculum and we really teach them how to look for evidence-based health resources, how to find legitimate sources rather than say relying on Wikipedia. There's nothing wrong with Wikipedia, but you want to find authoritative resources. So we try and teach those skills as soon as they enter any of our colleges. The other thing that's an important area is space. So the library's renovation that we completed last fall, we realized when we closed, what a difference that that made on campus. And I think a lot of people have this assumption that libraries are dying, that no one goes to them anymore. I've heard that for decades since I've been a librarian and that, well, Everything's electronic, especially in an academic health sciences library. Why do you even need this space? And what we've seen is that for students, they consider the space very important. And so a lot of the decisions that we made took into consideration their needs. And this is another area where we differ from maybe a more traditional university library and that our users really do not like collaborative open spaces. They prefer to go into an individual study room and, and focus there, or even maybe a group study room with only two other people. And so when we were designing our space, we worked closely with the architects to build for something that meets the needs of our users compared to some of our other campus partners in the University of Nebraska system. And we also look at our space as it's also a wellness area. So we have looked at different amenities, such as we offer reflection rooms, we offer a writing center. We have an inclusion space with materials on the walls, images and quotes that students selected, and really a place where they just feel really welcome. It's also one of the few places on campus where we have everyone from all of the colleges come and study and, and join together. And I think that that's really important for that sense of community. This is a good a day as any To start the rebuilding of life The roads that lay open are many When the old one's gone under the knife And I can feel 
this mission of connecting the past, informing the present, building the future, the Wigton Heritage Centre, which I think is a, a really pretty stunning example of that spirit in practice for a 21st century library, not perhaps what people would expect when at the top you talk about you know, a medical science, a health science library, 99% of a collection might be accessible online. But the Wigton Heritage Centre is all of the other elements that your mission, I think, is um, pointing towards. Would you tell us more about the Wigton <laughs> Heritage Centre? Sure. So the library, traditionally, academic health science libraries do not have strong rare book or um, special collections and archives. And we are an exception to that. We have a very large collection of rare books, artifacts, archives, and other material. And those are unique, not only to Nebraska, but in some cases, the entire world. And they're hidden on, on what is our top floor. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to bring our special collections and archives to a larger audience. And at the same time, that mirrored the interests of Chancer Gold and Bob Wigton in terms of this Heritage Center, creating this visitor space. And what we like to call it is the largest exhibit case in the world. <laughs> it probably isn't the largest in the world, but it really enclosed the original facade of University Hospital and its iconic columns in this glass atrium. And it's, it's a gathering space. I was just walking through there today and there are tons of students sitting and studying, talking and conversation about a variety of things, people meeting and surrounding this are exhibits, both physical and interactive exhibits on the history of UNMC, but also healthcare professionals in the state of Nebraska. And we're adding more exhibits later this year, but we really want to tell the story of where we've come from, because I really do think that it makes a difference in terms of students understanding the developments that have happened, but also honoring those who came before us and made significant contributions. I think the most powerful exhibit we have is of Dr. Susan LaFleche Picot, the first Native American physician in traditional Western medicine. And at a very early age, she left the Omaha reservation and went out east for her education. And rather than staying out east, she returned to Nebraska and served the Omaha um, people, but also just other residents in Nebraska and created her, her own hospital. Unfortunately, she passed away at a very early age and there's now an effort underway to uh, restore her hospital and provide care again. And so we have this exhibit that tells the story of Dr. Susan LaFleche Picot, and it includes artifacts that she used either when she was undergoing training. For, for example, we have a textbook of hers with her marginalia in it, um, but we also have her stethoscope and things like that. And I, I really think it it's important to tell those stories. We have one on the Department of Psychiatry, which at the time, the Nebraska Psychiatric Institute was a major player in the world and was looked at as a model of how to provide care. And Dr. Reba Ben Scooter is someone who was way before her time, and she started telehealth back in the 1950s and 60s in behavioral health to places such as Norfolk. And so I look at that and look at where technology has come from, how far it's come, 
And I think it's helpful for people to hear. Um, we have oral histories that people can listen to. And, and we have a dental gallery that features a dental office from the 1870s. And it's a little frightening to see, but I also think everyone has finds that exhibit very compelling because of the change in instruments, chairs, drills, things like that. So we've had, we opened at the end of June and we've had quite a few people come through, um, students, alumni, and everyone's blown away by just the presentation of what we have. And it is unique. We're one of the few, if only academic health sciences center that has this type of museum. We're planning on online exhibits that will accompany it so people don't have to come to Omaha, Nebraska, but we can also supplement it with other material. But it's a fun space. And as someone who wanted to become a historian rather than a librarian, it's been sort of a perfect marriage of my interests. So selfishly, I'm, I'm really happy that we did it. The dentist office display, it is frightening. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of imagination just to, you know, put yourself in one of the three chairs and there are the tools there and um, they do not look appealing at all. No, one of the artifacts that Dr. Stan Harn, the curator of the collection and that we show in all of our tours is called a tooth key and it's modeled after old hotel skeleton keys and you put a hook on the end of it and you use it to extract a tooth. Sometimes you would extract one tooth, sometimes surrounding teeth, and sometimes part of the jawbone. So that's always kind of fun to show people. There are people clicking off this uh, show right now. <laughs> when I wake up early in the morning, and when I come home at night, everything is covered in darkness, and the sun is out of sight. I guess I'm library is serving so many more people then than you might have expected. So obviously there's students and faculty and researchers, but it feels to me now that there probably is an interest in this history and the artifacts of that history that have reached far, far beyond Nebraska and members of the public that could spend time with this. Has your perception of your responsibility to stakeholders shifted at all? We've always believed in supporting all the residents of the state of Nebraska and, and beyond. So with our special collections and archives, we've had researchers come and view our rare book collection. We have on permanent loan the H. Winnett Orc collection from the American College of Surgeons. So we have people who come and look at those books. We have a large and very rare infant feeder device collection. So we have people who've come all over who have wanted to photograph different artifacts um, from that collection. We also have digitized quite a bit of our um, special collections and we've made those available online. And when we look at those stats, you see a global audience. So we have a very large archival collection on Dr. Wolf Wolfensberger. And that collection definitely sees a global audience where people are, are downloading former lectures, newsletters that he's written, and so on. And so we see that global reach, which is what we want. And we don't want these materials just sitting in a box or a shelf and not being used. And so that part's been very satisfying. And, and as campus will reopen, 
once we get through the worst of, of COVID, we anticipate bringing school groups through that the Heritage Center. And we're really looking at programming to accompany the different exhibits because we, we really want to show um, people what it's like, health, how health professionals have changed during time over the years, but role models that they can look to. But also part of our mission with the library is, is outreach. And so we have an extensive program where we have provided consumer health information for residents of Nebraska for over 40 years or almost 40 years. And that is, is something that we still believe very strongly. And so we do trainings across the state with public librarians, people in senior facilities, and, and we answer those, those questions for any Nebraska resident. So that is a big part of what we do and just whatever we can do to support the community and finding trustworthy healthcare information um, is, is an important mission of ours. to turn to more personal issues that you've recently written about and spoken about. And I was prompted to make this transition to that subject when you started talking about role models and um, health information and outreach as part of what the library does for people you know, more broadly. I think it was fairly recently that you wrote a piece about experience with depression and suicidal ideation. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. And I wanted to ask, when did you sort of first become, perhaps even before, a, 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 as it were, a clinical diagnosis, but when did you first become aware of experiences related to um, depression? So very early age, um, probably around the age of, of 13 was, was the first time I attempted suicide. And certainly throughout high school, um, I had multiple suicide attempts. And as I got better, and I, I never really had the opportunity to have clinical care um, just because of the town I lived in. And it just, it was, it wasn't something that people wanted to broadcast and to talk about. And I think there was a little bit of shame on the part of my parents and trying to figure out how to help me without making it very public. As I went on in, in college and as an adult, there were definitely times where I would completely shut down. And I don't think I realized at the time how much my depression was affecting um, just kind of who I am. And sometimes I could point to a reason. I mean, certainly there's situational depression and sadness that 
many people encounter, but mine just seemed very deep. And I went through different periods of time where I really lost that ability to function, especially in my college years. And as an adult, as, as a working adult, it's been, um, it's more of a challenge because I need to be able to come to work and, and leave what's happening at the door. And I've been more successful at doing that as I've become older and also as I've managed my depression, either through um, therapeutic or pharmaceutical interventions. But it's still a challenge. And I think that one of the things that prompted me to, to write about this is that UNMC believes very strongly in well-being. And I am proud to work at an institution where that that is not hidden. We don't hide these conversations. And the chancellor has sponsored a lot of well-being initiatives. It's why the library has three reflection rooms um, so that people know that they have a place to go to. And so over the course of the last three or four months, other people on campus started writing similar articles and they were on the clinical side of things. And I thought it was important that someone, that people saw that non-clinicians can also go through this, but also leaders. And as a member of the leadership team, I felt it was important that people who know me as this high functioning adult can see that, yes, I also have this side that is, is not only dark, but where I've had some pretty difficult struggles, even since I've been at UNMC as most recently as a couple of years ago. And, and to let people know that there's hope and that there are things that you can do, um, just checking in with people, making phone calls. And, and for people who are depressed, coming up with a plan, I, I will say that I know my signs for when I'm starting to struggle. And I pay close attention to that. And I always have a plan in place. So recognizing signs, were you helped to find the space to understand those signs? Or did you have to learn those signs through just hard experience in your life? And what are those signs that make you think, oh, yes, I just need to be um, aware that something's happening here? Unfortunately, it's been through hard experiences. Uh, I, I would say that a sign, a couple of signs that I knew several years ago that things, things had changed for me. For example, just we were just talking about reading. I couldn't read a book. I look back at that year. I think I read two books that entire year. I'm a huge college basketball fan. I didn't even watch the NCAA tournament that year. So I knew that something was wrong. I wasn't finding joy in things. Um, I, I tend to sleep a lot. Um, just I kind of shut down and I withdraw from people. So I have to pay uh, attention to that. And so some of my friends know that if they don't hear from me for a while, they know that something is probably wrong and they'll reach out just to make sure that I'm doing okay. And, and then you talked about some of these mechanisms and structures and sort of not necessarily a routine, but, but a practice that you can institute when you, when you have this recognition that work for you to um, perhaps bring you to a different place. I don't think you're saying that, you know, th this is what works for everybody, but, but you've worked this out for yourself. And so what are, what are those, as it were, um, coping practices? Finding, well, first of all, um, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have a fantastic therapist. So uh, certainly 
making sure that I stay on top of that. Um, that has certainly helped. But also knowing that if, if I'm starting to sense a shift in how I'm feeling, to really look at it and to think, okay, is this situational? Is this based on something that's happening right now? Or is this something a little bit deeper? And, and now I have those tools where I can really kind of look at that. It's easy to slip into that sad, melancholy side of me, but I also know that that's not the severe depression that is going to just knock me out. I think that when I get to that knock me out stage is where I've really built those strategies of making sure that I don't stay home alone all the time, that I get out at least once a week. And that was certainly a struggle during COVID, but I, I actually handled it much better than I thought. It sort of my um, true introverted self maybe sort of enjoyed it. <laughs> Whereas now I'm kind of struggling with, oh no, now I have to get out and see people. But I also just have some people in my life who've just been um, serve as inspirations. And I look at them and the struggles that they face and talking with them and being open with them about my own struggles. I, I try not to hide it. And I think that's one benefit of, of being more open on campus is that certainly I have peers who have reached out and who I think kind of keep an eye on me. Not that I, I need that, but um, they ask how I'm doing. And I'm not afraid to say if I'm, if I'm going through a rough time. But I also try very much to look for solutions. Um, and so part of it is picking up a book and trying to lose myself in a book rather than just taking a nap for four hours in the evening. I don't think it's a surprise to anybody to hear that social stigma or shame around any, anything to do with mental health um, still persists. And so I'm wondering, what was your experience of something like stigma or shame early on? And how do you feel that has changed, if at all? I definitely dealt with it growing up. There is no question about it. Um, I think that I sent, obviously, pretty strong signals that I was an incredibly unhappy teenager and young adult. And it, it just, there wasn't a sense that anyone wanted to really help me with that and, and work through that. I still remember when I was in high school, I, a new person started at my high school and we became close friends. And she was the first person I ever opened to about the severity of my depression. And she also dealt with severe depression. So we really connected over that, but it was such a relief to finally have someone to talk to. I had an English teacher my junior year of high school who really, in many respects, saved my life um, because she was an adult that knew I was really depressed. And we didn't talk about my depression. She would give me kind of flip advice at the time, you know, like, oh, get a perm. It'll make you feel better. Granted, that was the 1980s. So perm might have been the best solution. Not something I would recommend today. But it was that just casual advice and those conversations that really almost was a lifeline for a period of time. So I've gone through my life with different people who've been open to that and have said, this is safe to, to talk with you about. But it's certainly been difficult in relationships that I've had where 
there are times where I just really need to shut down. And so um, that has been, that's probably been a, a big struggle. Um, and then also just as I've moved around the country, finding support, finding um, the right therapist who can help. And, and so I was lucky when I moved to Omaha. But I would say the struggle that I have here is that it's just, it's hard to build a community as an adult, first of all, I think. Second of all, I don't belong. I don't have children and I don't belong to a church. And so it's really hard to build a community and a network of friends. And so that's, that's probably been the biggest struggle since I've been here. But the, the friends that I do have here in Omaha have, have been great. Um, they certainly helped me through the, the period that I went through a couple of years ago. But, you know, I even look at a situation um, just, just yesterday, someone asked me about a trip that I took home and I was able to frankly tell her how difficult it was and how it triggered a lot of memories from when I was growing up and just having that space to talk about that. And obviously now she knows my history through the article I wrote at work, but that just being able to talk about that, um, it was a huge load off of, off my mind. Um, just having those spaces because that stigma does exist. And I think that society is getting a little bit better about it. And as I said, my article, if we're dealing with a chronic condition, say like diabetes, you know, people don't judge that. Um, and they want you to get the medication and the support systems in place, whether it's to eat better or to take your medications on a regular basis. So why not the same thing for mental health, which in many cases can be a chronic condition for some of us. You're a leader in an institution, uh, regardless of what we've been talking about. You've you've forged a career around a subject that matters a lot to you, and clearly respected in your field to be the inaugural dean there. And I just wonder if the totality of your life makes you feel as if you have fortitude and strength, and and um, you know vulnerability combined with that, and and you feel empowered to 
I don't know, embrace whatever the next chapter for you is around leadership. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely feel more empowered. And I, I would say I've gone through different struggles in my life. One thing that was an early struggle for me was coming out. And I had a situation at one of my first library positions before, as I was finishing graduate school, where I had a coworker threaten my life, um, even though I wasn't out at work. And that was something that has affected most of my professional career, where I haven't traditionally been very out at work. And so, and even though I've been, I've worked in very supportive environments, I just chose to keep that very private because of that experience. And so here at UNMC, I, we've had so much progress that's been made over the course of the eight years that I've been here in terms of support for LGBTQ um, faculty, staff, and students. And so even a couple of years ago, I participated in a forum, campus forum related to inclusivity. And I, I told my story and I was, I was scared to death to do it because of just this experience that I had had when I was 29 years old. And now I feel a lot more comfortable with that. And I can finally feel like I can be my authentic self at work. And part of that is because of the support that I received from my colleagues. And, and the same thing with even the article I wrote about depression. Um, I don't have anything else left to hide here. And, but it's, I've been met with just so much support and people thanking me. And I have worried, like, will this hurt me? Um, if I move on to a different institution and I've, I decided I wouldn't want to work at that type of institution. This is really a very supportive environment and I would want to work somewhere else where that's valued from the top, very, very much throughout the entire organization. I'm wondering about now you've hit this point, if you have a sort of a crystal ball thought about what is the future now that you've had sort of personal experience with you know managing health and a professional experience with 21st century cutting edge knowledge around medicine as well as a view of where we've come from what do you think is the future for health what's the next big exciting thing what what do you see on the horizon that's going to just um you know blow our minds <laughs> oh it is so hard to predict um i certainly would not have been able to predict the last few years. <laughs> I can't even predict the future of libraries beyond the, the next two years, three years. I, I really think artificial intelligence obviously is going to be a big thing that will enter the health and healthcare environment. Um, and it probably will affect libraries too. I have my concerns about it as it relates to inclusive practices and, and things like that. So I have some concerns. Certainly, you know, we're a global environment. And what we've seen first with Ebola, we see this with COVID. We have to look at everything from a global perspective. That's one of the reasons why I'm proud to be at UNMC and the work that we've done. And it's part of the university's um, mission that we will lead the world. And I, I so it kind of ties in with some of that. You've got a rich personal and professional history of insight too. And it just made me think, I wonder what you think is around the corner. Well, I will say this. So people have said that the print book is dying, and they've been saying that for many years, decades. As a matter of fact, at my last position, 
and Oregon, um, Oregon Health and Science University, they built their new library thinking that there weren't going to be any print books in that library. And shortly after they opened, they realized, oh, wait a second, we still need all these print materials. And so they had to reinforce um, all of the floors to handle the shelving. So I still say the print book is not going to go away. In a library like ours, sure, we're not buying as much print, but our unique collections like special collections and archives, those will continue to grow. And that's where we're building capacity. People still love the print book. I still love the print book. Um, whereas there are others who just really prefer their Kindle and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, whatever format you like is fine with me. I, I just think as, as long as you, you're reading, um, that's kind of the philosophy I take. So I think building spaces, I don't think library spaces will change dramatically in the next five to 10 years from getting rid of print. I think they'll, it'll narrow. Um, but I think that, again, libraries will continue to grow as places for community, um, for collaboration, and just for healing and reflection. And, and that is certainly something that we do see in trends with um, library buildings. People love, even looking at the museum experience, people love both looking at the physical exhibits, but they also, there's another group that loves to look at the interactive exhibits. I think we kind of meet all of those needs. Not too closely at the interactive exhibit. So because the dentistry skeleton key is still, that image is still sticking with me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. My guest today has been Emily McElroy, inaugural Dean of the McGugan Health Sciences Library at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Emily, I'm so grateful to you. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Stuart. I really appreciate it. I know I'm not really answering your question on this. This is a tough one. This is a stumper. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.